is our first Bible reading is from Job 31, verse 35. And you can find that on page 454 on the Black Bibles. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. If my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of his tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. The second reading is from Job chapter 34. Then Elihu said, Hear my words, you wise men. Listen to me, you men of learning, for the ear tests words as the tongue tastes food. Let us discern for ourselves what is right. Let us learn together what is good. Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I am considered a liar. Although I am guiltless, his arrow inflicts an incurable wound. Is there anyone like Job who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with the wicked. For he says, there is no profit in trying to please God. So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would, be, would return to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Susie. Please keep your Bibles open there. Uh, we are tonight going to try and cover Job chapters 29 right through to 37. And we're going to meet this sort of enigmatic, mysterious man called Elihu. So I want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we... We have uh, heavy hearts tonight, and we need to hear you speak to us. We need to hear words of truth and words of comfort. And we thank you, Father, that you have left the book of Job for us for learning and for our instruction and uh, for helping us in these times of heartache and pain. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it has been retained for us and translated for us. Thank you, Father, that... You give of your spirit to make these words on a, on a page life-changing and real and relevant. And so speak, Lord, because we long to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. 
want to ask you, what do you say when you personally are in pain? What kind of questions do you ask when you personally are suffering? When the heartache is real, when you're hurting so badly, what do you say to God? What do you say to the, uh, the couple I know who, godly Christian couple, and their two-year-old has just been diagnosed with a brain tumor? What do you, what do you say to them? What do you say to David and Sharon Holgate, who are my friends in South Africa, and their son has an incurable disease and he will not reach adulthood? What do you say to them? What do you say to uh, the person I know who, godly Christian woman, and, and her husband walked out on her totally without any warning? What do you say to her? What do you say to the missionary couple who are on the mission field right now and he's in his 30s and he's just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer? What do you say to them? What do you say to Bruce Chapman, our mission partner with, five, with four brain tumors? What do you say? I think in times of pain and in times of suffering, we all say the same two things. God, are you there? And God, that's not fair. God, are you there? Are you really there, God? What are you doing? And God, that is not fair. That is not right. I don't know about you, but when I'm in pain and I cry out to God and it feels like God is silent. It's a bit like when you send a text message crying out for help, but you just sit there and you stare at a blank screen and there's no response. God, where are you? Please, please, please don't leave me. And that is not right. It's not fair. Why are there refugee kids starving to death? Why is there oppression and injustice under ISIS? Why are there victims of earthquake and bushfires and droughts? Why are hospitals full of sick kids with cancer? Why are godly people being abandoned? Why are bosses bullying each other? Why, why are we anxious? Why are we depressed? Why, why, why? It's not fair, all this stuff that happens. God, you claim to be powerful. You claim to be good. Please, please do something. God, are you there? And God, that is not fair. If you never said that, one day you will. And I think they're the two big cries of these eight chapters of Job. Job is saying, God, you are, are you there? And God, that is not fair. If you just joined us, Job is a real man in history. Chapter 1 described him as blameless and blessed. He, he feared God. He shunned evil. He's a good man. And God, in his inexplicable wisdom, permitted awful things to happen. And he lost his family. He lost his possessions. He lost his property. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. All his kids died. And then these three friends came. Remember them? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These three men who came to supposedly comfort Job, but they, they, with their words they corrected him and they condemned him with their cold, trite, cause and effect theology. You know, if you do good things, good things happen. You do bad things, bad things happen, and it is rubbish. And Job feels in these chapters that God is inflicting him. 
chapter 30, verse 11, on the screen, now, now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me. He says, God, you are hurting me. And Job feels like God is not there. He feels like God is silent. He says, I cry out to you, God. But you don't answer me, God. And Job feels like God is not being fair. That's chapter 31, a long list of all these things that he hasn't done. He says, God, if I'd looked lustfully at another woman, I'd understand it, but I haven't. And if I'd been harsh with other people, but I haven't. And if I'd abused people or be materialistic, but I've done none of that stuff, God. God, this does not make sense. You are not being fair. You are treating me unfairly. And so Job does what I think we all do most of the time. We demand answers from God. And Job summons God into the dock in chapter 31, verse 35. Oh, that I had someone to hear me, he says. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. He says, come on, God. Tell me what you're doing. It's pretty outrageous, isn't it? Demanding that God should leave heaven to tell him what he wants to hear. What Job is saying here is actually, God, you know what? I don't think you're doing a very good job at ruling your world right now. I think you're bad at your job of governing, so hey, let's have a leadership spill and have a new God, shall we, who can do a better job? But to be honest, that's what we do all the time, isn't it? We tell God that he's running his world badly because he's not answering us like we'd like. And so God speaks. God actually enters onto the stage in, in chapter 38. We'll look at that next week. But for now, he speaks through this enigmatic man called Elihu. He's a bit mysterious. We don't know where he's come from. He's obviously been eavesdropping in the conversation. He's a bit like John the Baptist. He's preparing the way for God to speak. And he's described as an angry young man. Do you spot that in chapter 32, verse 2? He's angry with Job because Job is justifying himself. He's angry with the three friends because they have no answers. But deep down, he's angry because God's name is being maligned. He's angry because God's name and God's glory is being put to the test. And when Elihu speaks, he claims to speak the word of God. And he's not condemned like the other three friends in Job 42. He speaks the truth. And Job's, and Elihu's teaching for Job is what you and I need to hear tonight. Important words in chapter 33, verse 12. It's on the screen. Elihu says, I tell you, Job, in this you are not right. For God is greater than any mortal. That phrase, God is greater than any man or any woman, it's life-changing words. Elihu's message is, God is God and you are not. God is God, Job, and stop claiming that you know everything. Just perhaps God has some purpose or some perspective that you don't yet know. Now, what Elihu does, he says, Job, look, stop looking at yourself and stop looking at your situation 
and let God be God. It is totally humbling because here's the reality. We do not know the full mind of God, do we? None of us do. We're not always told what, is doing, what God is doing in every situation because we're just his creatures. He is the creator. And I know that rattles our cage because we'd like to know everything. But when we read the Bible, we said, God is God and you are not. It's not as though God owes us anything, is it? But God does speak and he teaches two things to Job that we need to hear tonight. Here's the first one. It's unthinkable that God is silent. It's unthinkable that God is silent. Please do not accuse God of not being there and please do not accuse God of remaining silent. God, are you there? God said, of course I'm there. Speak, Lord. And God said, I am speaking, but you're not listening. 33 verse 13, uh, why do you complain to God that God responds to no one's words? For God does speak, verse 14. God does speak now one way and now another, though no one perceives it. Elihu is saying to Job, please don't say that God is silent. God is always speaking. Our God is a God of revelation. Our God is a God who communicates. He revealed himself as creation. He's spoken through the prophets. He speaks, he speaks, he speaks. It's not that God doesn't speak. It's that we choose not to listen. God speaks in many and various ways. Though no one perceives it, says Elihu. You ever had a conversation with someone and, and you kind of go... You're not listening to me, are you? Or, or you're sitting having a conversation. You say, look, I don't think you're getting it. You're not understanding me. You're mishearing me. Or like talking to kids where their ears are blocked. And they go, I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear. And sometimes God speaks to us, but we don't want to hear. Or God is speaking to us, and we just don't understand what he's saying. So how does God speak? Well, verse 15 says he speaks through our consciences. In a dream, in a vision at night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears. It's this idea that, that when we are passive, when we are sleeping, God is still speaking. I don't know whether that happens to you, but sometimes I have these sleepless nights and I'm tossing and I'm turning and I'm thinking I can't sleep. And it's like God is just prodding me and reminding me of stuff and saying, that is wrong or that's got to change. So God speaks in our consciences, but God speaks in our pain. And we don't like this, but God does speak in our pain. See that in verse 19 of chapter 33? Elihu says, someone may be chastened on a better pain, or, or, or a better translation, refined, or disciplined on a better pain, with constant distress in their bones. Down to verse 23, if an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright, and he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them, spare them from going down to the pit, let their flesh be renewed like a child's, then that person can pray to God and find favour with him. And what Elihu is saying is that in your sickness, in your pain, in your distress, God is still speaking It's what C.S. Lewis famously said. Remember his quote? 
is God whispers in our pleasures. God speaks in our conscience, but God shouts in our pains. It's, it's his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. I love that. God shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Because we, we go through life, and life is good, and we totally ignore God. And when disaster strikes, God is shouting, I'm here, I'm here, please turn to me. And I see it time and time and time again. And the lady who said to me, it's when my husband left me that I realized that I'd walked away from God. I needed to turn back to God. When I was diagnosed with cancer, I realized that my faith was already shallow and superficial, and I encountered God in much a deeper, more real way. It's when I lost my job that I was forced to think, who am I? And I realized I was a child of God. God does speak in our suffering. God does speak in our pain. I know that's hard to hear. There's a purpose. Not to punish but to refine us and to transform us. It's not an expression of God's hatred, but of his love. Someone's described pain as like a, a surgeon's scalpel, where the surgeon, he, he uses his scalpel and he causes pain, but the purpose in that pain is to bring healing and to bring transformation. That's Elihu's theology. We're refined by God in suffering. Chapter 36, verse 15. 36, 15. Those who suffer, God delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He speaks to them in their pain. See, Job is not suffering because he sinned, but in his suffering, God is still speaking. God hasn't left him. God is transforming him. God is refining him. I reckon one of the ways that God does that for Job is this, that as the friends keep on speaking, as Job retaliates, Job becomes more and more and more proud. Have you spotted that, that Job is talking more about himself and how good he is and how amazing he is? Job is not being punished because he's proud, but his suffering reveals a hidden pride. See, when we suffer, we've got to learn to ask the the more difficult questions are not in the moment, but once the moment has passed and the pain is less, less intense, say, okay, God, I didn't like that. In fact, I hated that, God, but God, what were you teaching me? What were you showing me? How are you changing me? What are you doing, God? There's a verse in, in the Psalms that I hate. It's, it's Psalm 119, verse 71. It's a difficult verse to say. It says, it is good. It was good for me to be afflicted, God. That I might learn your decrees. Hard to say, isn't it? It was good that I was afflicted that I might learn your decrees. But that's how the New Testament talks about the way that God cares for his people. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're here tonight as a believer in Jesus, if you know that Christ died for your sins, then God calls you a child. You're his son, you're his daughter, and God is your heavenly father. And he loves you. But just like earthly parents and earthly fathers, one of the ways they teach their children is through refining and through disciplining and through correction. That's somehow how God works with us. My beautiful wife, Rachel, often says this. She said, I would never, I would never 
choose to go through the pain and the despair of seeing Ben die. That's her first husband who passed away. I would never choose to go through that depth of despair, but in it and through it, I encountered and experienced God in ways I probably would never have done that if he hadn't taken me there. That's extraordinary, but it's true. God speaks in our pain. It's unthinkable to think that God is silent. It's unthinkable that God is unjust. It's a direct quote from Job 34, verse 12. Do you see that? Job 34, 12. It's unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. It's unimaginable that God could be unjust or unfair. How dare we accuse God of that? But it's like Job has slipped into this one last tirade. He says, God, you talk about justice and you talk about yourself being fair. Well, let me prove you wrong, God. He says, God, I've led a good life. I've feared you. I've turned away from evil. I've wept with those who weep. I've grieved with those in need. I modeled mercy and kindness and compassion and I was not materialistic and I was faithful to my wife and what you've done is wrong, God. See, Job accuses God of injustice and being unfair. And what did Elihu says? 34 verse 10, listen to me, Job. Listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil. Our God cannot do evil. Do you believe that? Far be it from the Almighty to do the wrong thing. We might not like what he does, but it's not wrong. Verse 12, it's unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. That is unthinkable. God is just. God is God. He says in verse 17, can someone who hates justice govern? Can you imagine a world run by an unjust person? Well, partly, yes, we can, can't we? Because lots of countries of the world are ruled by unjust, despotic, dictatorial, evil people. Idi Amin, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, Kim Jong-un, Chairman Mao, millions and millions of innocent people have suffered because of the injustice and the evil of those men. But please don't see God through that lens. Can you imagine an unjust God governing his world? Of course we can't. Verse 13, who appointed God over the earth? Wasn't an election to decide who should run the world? No, God is God. Who put God in charge of the whole world? God did. And so verse 17, will you condemn the just and the mighty one? How dare you, Job, condemn God and say he is unjust or he's not powerful? And I love the fact that God's justice in Job 34 is linked to his knowledge. Verse 21, his eyes are on the ways of mortals and God sees their every step. He says God sees everything about every human being. God does not need forensic scientists to produce the evidence. He doesn't need DNA testing to give a verdict. He sees everything. He knows everything. So please, please, please believe he is just. How dare we think we know everything about God? Let me ask you a question. Do you really want justice in your life? Do you really want God to treat you justly? Is that what you want? 
Let's test that, shall we? I'm going to invite into this church tonight your family and your friends and your enemies. I'm going to sit them down tonight and I'm going to show on this screen all the things that you said about them and all the things that you did to them and all the things you thought about them. And I'm going to bring God here and say, okay, judge justly. Is that what you want? Do you really want God to judge you justly? Remember the famous story of the, the wealthy woman who was having her portrait painted and she was wealthy but she was not particularly attractive. And she said to the painter, uh, Sir, make sure you do me justice. And the quite rude painter said, Madam, it's not justice you need but mercy. <laughs> but that's us, isn't it? If I was here tonight with that screen full of what I've done, I'd see saying, God, I don't want justice. Please, God, I don't want justice, but I do need mercy. God, would you forgive me? See, see we're very good at asking that God brings justice on other people. But how about ourselves? We need mercy, don't we? Let me ask you another question. When was the, the greatest act of apparent injustice ever done? And it's not Auschwitz, it's not Pol Pot or the killing field of Cambodia, and it's not the refugee crisis. The greatest act of apparent injustice happened 2,000 years ago at Jerusalem, didn't it? It was unjust, it was unjust. It was not fair that a perfect man called Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, who taught about love and compassion and kindness and preached forgiveness, it was not fair that he was grabbed by evil men and stripped naked and flogged until his flesh was torn off his back. It was not fair that he was nailed to a cross. That wasn't fair, was it? Was that fair? Was it fair that Jesus died? It was not fair. From a human perspective, that's not fair. But from God's perspective, it was his plan. Why? Because he loves you. And he chose for his son to die in your place. And he chose for his son to be punished instead of you. And he chose to give you mercy instead of the justice that you deserve. Now, please don't talk about justice. We need mercy. But God has created us to demand justice. It's inbuilt to our humanity. You know, you see it when you know, you're watching a soccer game and the referee makes a really bad decision. You go, no, that's not fair. Or the, 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 the judge in court gives the wrong verdict. That's not fair, God. So what do you do with this inbuilt demand for justice, for all the evils of this world to be put right? You know, surely the... The perpetrators of the, the killing fields of Cambodia, they must be brought to justice, surely. Surely the, the kids that are starving today, there must be justice for that whilst we live in lavish indulgence. We long for justice. And the good news of the Bible is that God has set a day when there'll be justice. And God set a day when that same man who hung on a cross unjustly will come back again to judge the world and everybody will be held to, held to account for what they've done we've sung about it every knee will bow before him and give an account for what they've done 
I love what the missionary Gregory Fisher writes. What will he say when he shouts? The question took me by surprise. I'd already found out that West African Bible College students can ask some of the most penetrating questions about minute details of Scripture. He asked again, Reverend, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 says that Christ will descend from heaven with a loud shout. I'd like to know what that shout will be. And I wanted to leave the question unanswered and tell him we mustn't go past what Scripture has revealed. But then my mind wandered to an encounter I'd had earlier that day with a refugee from the Liberian Civil War. The man was a high school principal. He told me how he'd been apprehended by a two-man death squad, terrorised for hours. He narrowly escaped, hiding in the bushes for two days. But the escape cost him dearly, and two of his children lost their lives. I saw flashbacks of beggars I passed every morning on my, on my way to the office. I saw how poverty destroys dignity. And I'm haunted by the vacant eyes of people who have lost all hope. He asked again, Reverend, you haven't given me an answer. What will he shout? Enough, I said. He'll shout enough when Jesus returns. A look of surprise came on his face. What do you mean enough? Enough suffering, enough starvation, Enough terror, enough death, enough indignity, enough lives trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness and disease, enough, enough, enough. It's a brilliant answer. Enough to innocent kids being slaughtered, enough to dictators causing panic and fear in the world, enough to domestic violence, enough to child abuse, enough to poverty, enough to depression, debilitating disease, enough to cancer and natural disasters, enough, enough, enough. Surely you want this world to be rid of all the suffering and all the evil and all the pain. Surely you want that. And surely you want everything who's caused so much pain to be brought to account. Enough. It's what we long for. And God says that yes, there will be a day. It's called Justice Day. Or Judgment Day. But the challenge for us is that we will stand before our maker to give an account as well. So I need to ask you tonight, have you asked God for mercy instead of justice? Have you come before God and said, God, please don't give me justice. I I know that I deserve hell. Have you done that? He come to the cross and said, thank you, Jesus, that you died in my place. Thank you that you suffered unjustly so that I can be forgiven. Have you done that? If you haven't yet done that, you're heading towards Judgment Day or Justice Day in perilous danger. And can I plead with you to do that tonight, please? It's really simple. All you have to say is, God, I don't, deserve, I don't want justice, but I need your mercy. God, are you there? God says, I'm here. I'm whispering and I'm shouting. God, that's not fair. No. 
Sometimes it's not fair. Sometimes from a human's perspective, it is not, not fair. And sometimes we do not understand God's bigger picture or plans. But please don't accuse God of being unjust. Just humbly say, I don't get it, God. I don't get it, God. But you are God and I am not. I'm going to finish by praying. It's a poem by Corrie Temboom, who suffered greatly. The poem is called Life is But a Weaving. So please close your eyes and listen to these amazing words. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. God knows, God loves, God cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him.